Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I chat with Ironman legend Craig Riddington. Riddo talks about his Ironman days, the Uncle Toby's breakaway series, his career-ending arm injury and his passion for water safety. Then later on, lifeguard Harrison joins me in the shack for Beach Banner and I go to the mailbag to answer questions from the fans. Now let's have a listen to my chat with Riddo. Well, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got uh, Ironman legend and water safety expert, Craig Rido rington Rido, good to have you in, mate. G'day, Hoppo. How are you? Yeah, good, mate. Good. I um, remember the days of Ironman racing back in, you know, when I was growing up as a kid and watching, and uh, what takes me back is the cool and gutter gold, and that was 984. And tell us a bit about that. Geez, you're showing your age there. <laughs> uh, it, it, interesting story, but um, we only found out about the race about three weeks before it. So we believe that all the people on the Gold Coast and have been training for months for it. And uh, I guess back in those days, there was no mobile phones or, or internet. But uh, So we, we just saw this ad in the surf club, and, and I think it was in January, mid-January or whatever, and we had limited time. I remember the only um, time we had to do a run through was on Christmas Day, and um, from memory, uh, about four of us from Manly did it, and um, Steve Wood was the only one who went, got anywhere near and doing it. So Leach and myself and another fella got nowhere near finishing, finishing it. So we uh, went up to the Gold Coast pretty well unprepared. Many of the other competitors were flown up and, and looked after, and I think Leach and I stayed at the uh, Southport Surf Club with all the other people in the bunks. And uh, it was also quite funny because we knew nothing about carbo loading. So we thought carbos were, were cakes and <laughs> and hot chips and, and all that sort of thing. At, uh, so, you know, we were eating all this pasta and cakes and that sort of thing. I remember Lucci throwing up in the sand the night before the, the event because he was so full of sugar. <laughs> so to say we were prepared is... <laughs> <laughs> Jeez, that's un- we're, you know, we're talking about uh, the guy Leach there that... Uh, Mate, I don't know if he's ever had sugar put in his body since then, has he? No, 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 no. He's definitely uh, – <laughs> it doesn't work with his mirror. Mirror time, I don't think. <laughs> well, mate, that was sort of uh, – you placed in that, did you? Yeah, I got third, actually. So, Leachie won it, you know, out of the blue. And oh, I actually hit the beach second. I only had 200 metres to run. but And I came in a whole wave length ahead of third place because they were basically trailing me on the ski. I managed to get a wave, but – I came straight in off the turning can and, and there was such a big crowd in the funnel to get to the line. It was about 10 deep and they didn't see me come in. They must have looked at the other the other mob coming in the next wave and they couldn't see. I, I basically did a stage dive in, in to try and get through the crowd. I couldn't get through the crowd. I lost I lost third place on that wave and um, and it nearly got ended up fourth actually. But I think, I'm not sure. I think it was about $4,000 of a loss back, yeah. back then. Uh, uh, not a great way to finish, but it would have been nice to get first and second, that's for sure. Yeah, it would have been. And um, so that was sort of – was that the start of Ironman? 
back in the day? At, yeah, like a bit more professional. I mean, yeah, we, we, we trained hard back in those days, but we did, just did it for the love of the sport. I think we, um, you know, you were competing for short course Ironmans, which were, you know, maximum 12 minutes, and they were a real sprint as in compared to a four-and-a-half-hour four event. So, you know, obviously we've done a lot of black background work. We, we came from swimming backgrounds, so we've done a lot of uh, endurance work. So, um, but, you know, generally the, the change in, going from our normal um, lactate, I guess, tolerant event to a, a real endurance event was a bit of a shock to the system. But, uh, yeah, that was the first professional event. And then the next year they introduced a couple of other uh, two-hour Ironman events, which um, then basically started the ball rolling. Right. You did tell me a story ages ago. You actually introduced Leachy to the sport. Is that true? Yeah, I, I gave myself an uppercut for the next 10 years. Yeah, you should have. For doing that, it was... <laughs> He was a breaststroke. We were trying to climb the ice together, and, and I, I don't think his thing was going going t- too far. But um, I, at that time, I was actually representing Australia in swimming, and uh, I got Leachy down when we were, I think, fourteen or fifteen. And uh, you know, he was he had no idea in the surf, but um, he he was such good as, as an endurance athlete that he just took to it once the cool and got a gold started. He had no idea he could run. He had no idea he had so much endurance on the ski and so forth. And, um, yeah, once, you know, it was just daylight once he got going. But, yeah, yeah, kicking myself for that. <laughs> right, then uh, obviously it went semi-professional, as you said, in the Ironman, which was then known as the, the Kellogg's Musigrain Series. And then from there, there was a bit of a, a falling out, a breakaway, uh, which became the Uncle Toby Series. Just give us a insight how that all came about and, and reasons why – you know, you guys, the top athletes, decided to go to Uncle Toby's. We we basically were doing the same event, the same format of event, you know, every two weeks. And we, we, we were spending a lot of our own money and making very little money in prize money and we're getting billeted out. But we knew there was a lot more money in the sponsorship and we weren't happy about a lot of a lot of the things with um, the way the Surf Life Saving ran the event. So... We basically got together in Perth. I remember John Mercer, Dan and Darren's dad, he wanted us to get together. I mean, chatted about getting a, another series going. And lo and behold, Grant and Grant Kenny and Lisa Curry were um, working behind the scenes with um, Uncle Toby's. And, and six months later, in the, in the, in the wintertime, we, we had a, a, a launch of a new series, but we had no idea who the sponsor was until we actually arrived at the launch. And it was Uncle Toby's, so it was a bit of a... Bit of a funny situation where the, the it was it became the serial war, but certainly most of the athletes came over, and, and interestingly, um, Darren and Dean didn't, and they stayed with the Nutrigrain series, and they um they ended up making a lot more money out of that series than what we did the Uncle Toby's events, but the Uncle Toby series really put the sport on the map, and um, we really worked hard as a, a team, I guess, to find the best ways to to bring to life in the public's eyes and, and on TV and, and choose the, the venues that had predictably big surf and and it made exciting formats so that the, the viewer could really get involved and, and it certainly worked. Oh, it definitely did. And it was live TV, wasn't it? So you sort yeah. of – and you guys became sort of like rock stars at, at that era. It, was, it really took off and I think everybody, even to this day, would remember – yourself and Grant Kenny and Guy Leach and Trevor Hendy and, you know, you, you ask around now and people don't really know who the Ironmen are. No, I don't. 
we, we used to do a, a local surf carnival. You know, we had surf carnivals every week and, and every TV station would film it and it would be on the news. Yep. These days, it, you don't ever know when the Aussies are on. You can't see it in the paper. You can't see it. Um, I think, yeah, there may be something on Fox or whatever, but it's just lost lost it all, which is really unfortunate because the, the athletes are still brilliant. The competitors right through surf lifesaving are really fit. And I guess Australian icons, they're a real, it's a real branding opportunity, but it's really missed and um, it's unfortunate. We, we really lived in the glory days back then. We were very lucky and I'd love to see it come back, but I just don't know how it's done until it, um, I guess, until it splits and uh, becomes another sort of Uncle Toby's scenario where, where someone who loves the sport comes in and takes it and puts money into it and, and puts passion into it. Yeah. Well, back in when the Uncle Toby started, really it was a, a Trevor Hendy sort of came along and he dominated the sport back in the early days. Yeah, he, he you know, timing was perfect for him because he was just becoming a senior and I think he won the Aussies in 87. And two years later, we're doing the Ironman series and no one knew that, but Trevor was a brilliant runner as well at school and um, he was just a natural at everything we did. Did The rumour that Trevor didn't do much training is probably from what I experienced is correct. You know, because I lived with him many years. He was just a freak athlete. He just, you know, all the tests we did on, on lung capacity and that sort of thing, he just blew it off the charts. And, and he his skill base and, you know, on paper he was never the best athlete, but his skill base and his ability to lift and just the faith in he had, had him himself as an athlete was incredible and you, you, you won't see another one in the sport. So do you think he, he was pretty much the best that you've ever raced against? Oh, certainly he's the best I've ever raced against. And uh, he just, you know, can do things, you know, that us immortals couldn't do, you know, even, even if, you know, people went, were paddling next to him and three, three strokes later he would be from going behind them to in front of them. They'd just look at him and go, how the hell? How the hell did you do that? And you know, same when he was running, he was just this incredible runner in between uh, the water legs, and and because he was also so tall, he was able to wade when everyone else was swimming. So that made it harder, yeah. harder for all of us. Well, especially because my legs were so short. <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, do you think that um, you know Darren Mercer and Dean Mercer stayed with the Nutrigrain? Do you think if they came over, because Darren was dominating at that stage as well in the Nutrigrain, do you think that would have been a, a quite a a competitive you know, against Trevor? I think uh, – no, not really. Darren was more an endurance athlete, and we, we kind of made the series so it had a, a range of, of physical attributes. And, um, and yes, running was quite important, but Darren was more uh, an athlete like Leachy, and because and we put so much emphasis in the surf, we um, – we really spread it out between the, the, the endurance athletes and the surf athletes, the guys with skill. So, no, I don't think uh, Darren would have um, would have dominated. Certainly he would have been, you know, in the top top three or four yep. for sure. Who's the toughest competitor, you reckon, that, that you raced against in those Uncle Toby's days? Oh, Leachy was the never-say-die, dog-at-a-bone sort of athlete. He, he – I mean, there was one one race that, that I did I'd, in Adelaide there was no surf and I led – I led the whole race to the last three seconds. Leachy passed me in the last run leg. He crossed the line and, and collapsed and went straight to hospital. Didn't race for the next year. The rest of the year, he was that sort of athlete that could go out of body and um, put himself in situations that, you know, we'd always try our guts out. But he just, uh, I don't know, mentally, he just had that extra 
that extra bit. I don't know if it's healthy, but um, certainly, you know, there are times where you go, you know, I'm a better swimmer than Leecher or better at this. But you, you couldn't shake him because he was yeah. just, like I said, he was just so determined, I guess. And how was it uh, racing like Ports? It was probably the days when you probably got the biggest surf at, at that time. Yeah, yeah, Portsea was amazing. So, and that's why we chose it. We, we knew we'd get a surf. the The first year we went down, the day before the um, the event, I think it was six broken skis and boards. And so we we thought, oh, we're not going to be able to race the next day. It it um it did abate enough for us to race. But Portsea is a sort of beach where no matter how far you were out, you know, we'd be half a kilometre out to sea, uh, maybe a kilometre out to sea in the ski leg, and and you'd still at risk of getting hit by waves. You know, there'd always be a rogue set coming out of Bass Strait that you were always worried to be hit. Just amazing place. But I remember the first year, the, the whole, um, the head, well, it's not a headland, it's just a big embankment was, was filled with about 10,000 people. And they really loved it. And it was such a great spot to race. So from there, um, I noticed that uh, because you guys became rock stars, is that why you... Um put uh, a band together to continue the rock star? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a bit of an unbelievable story. That, <laughs> we just would get together in, in uh, Trevor's garage and just start jamming just to, I don't know, I don't know why we did it. But anyway, the story goes, um, Molly Meldrum heard about what we're doing, asked us to do a, um, a Millie Vanilli type mind thing and we said no nah, we, we, we couldn't do that so we thought oh let's let's take this a bit more seriously and um trevor's manager was um was into music so within months we were, we were supporting the beach boys <laughs> on a national tour and, and um we're all playing guitar i think i think grant um Duane was playing drums just learning drums and the rest of us were playing guitar and guy andrews was singing and no one was playing bass so i said look we need a bass player so i <laughs> <laughs> I had to volunteer to play bass, and and within within a month of learning bass, I was in front of ten thousand people, <laughs> um, which was so exciting. And it's and it, you know, as much as I love it, I, I feel unfortunate for musos that are so damn good that never get the opportunity that we had. But I guess that's sport in a way that you you do get opportunities, but you got to take them. Yeah, hundred percent. That's uh, yeah, doors open when you're in different fields and you know sporting. People do get those doors open and uh, into different areas, which you know. It's, yeah, uh, and I stuck with my music. I I recorded my own album. Um, you know, I really like the constructive part of music, learning how to um, how to record and how to put it together, how to write songs, and and couldn't sing for crap. But um, I got other guys in to dress the songs yeah. up. So you know, I really loved it, and I, I went on with it. And I'm I'm a real music lover. Yep. I never know. You might be able to come out with a with an album. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's there, but uh, I'm just going to do something with it. Well, don't ask me to sing because tell you it'll go nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know, mate. Uh, you then you did um, you picked up an arm injury in your in your career. Is that something that ended your career from there? Yeah, I um, it was actually the peak. I was actually I'd actually got to a stage where I'd worked myself out. You know how I was trying the best, and and I was actually. I was in such good form and then I got this rare blood clot in my arm. I couldn't work out what it was and I went to doctors and physios and they were giving me the, the bump steer. But finally one said, oh, look, you've got a blood clot, you need to go to hospital. Don't pass, go, go straight there. And um, basically I was in 
critical care for 11 days could have could have dropped dead at any stage but uh the blood clot i had this drug streptokinase in it and after 11 days i started to get a trickle of blood through the through the top end of the clot and they showed me and i said well let's let's keep it going they said no we can't, we need to take it out. And I said, well, why is that? And they said, because you'll be dead tomorrow. <laughs> it's such a strong drug. It's rat poison, basically. Right. And then that, the clot just shut down again, and, and I was never able to get the use, 100% use back of the arm. So um, I tried to compete. They called me the clock because I had one big arm, one little arm. Because <laughs> the blood would go in, but it couldn't go back out. So um, it, was, it wasn't like it was painful, but it's like when you're in the gym and you're lifting you're lifting weights and you couldn't get the last weight up. That's how it always felt when I was swimming. So extremely uncomfortable, but, um, you know, it doesn't affect me today. I, um, you know, and I'm not, uh, I don't look back at it and go, uh, I wish that didn't happen. It's ruined my life. It's actually, uh, you know, a good learning curve. And I think we, things like that happen for reasons. And, uh, I think it's how we, how we cope with it that sort of defines us. Yeah, I mean, it, you've got to be quite resilient. And But was there a dark period, though, when you're saying you're at the top of, uh, you know, that professional sport and then you got this injury and, you know, how did you deal with it? You know, a lot of people struggle uh, to deal with that sort, yeah, of, sort of thing. certainly. And you, and you see you see athletes who, who do leave their sport and you hear a lot of footballers that struggle with it and so forth. You can see because that's what you know. That's, your, that's not only um, your life, but it's also your income. And that's how what defines you, and it gets taken away from you. So, yeah, I, I went through some really dark periods, and but it was actually the music that got us through because it. I guess that's why I, I took the music seriously because it was all I had at that point, and trying to work out a, a, a career as as well. But the music certainly gave me what the, the sport had given me, you know, a, something to really get my teeth into and work hard at. So yeah, just just getting in the in Trevor's garage, I think was. A godsend for my mental health, mate. Then uh, after you, you, you finished, you started off with Surf Educators Australia. Did that come after retirement, or that was something that? Uh, how did you think about doing the water safety? Yeah, it actually it happened. Came from a, uh, one of the races in Portsea. The idea that we we're about to start the race, and because um, it was live TV, we we're in an ad break, and they were just um, as we came out of the ad break, ad break, we we're ready to go. And in that time, about 20 people got caught in a rip on the shoreline, right off the shoreline. We all, all the Ironmen went and rescued them, brought them back to shore, and got back on the line, ready to go, and no one would, would have known what happened. But I said to Leachie, I said, that's unbelievable that, that all those people couldn't see the rip. And uh, we sort of thought, oh, shit, there might, might be a business in this. Anyway, so, you know, years later, I thought, okay, I need to do something that actually uses my best skill my, and knowledge. And um, started talking to some schools about doing programs that use water safety and, and, and a lot of skills to, to work with the syllabus to come up with programs for, for school students. And uh, we um, had an article in the newspaper and within, within a day we had 17 schools basically had signed up to do the program and that's sort of how it, back in those days was Surf Educate Australia, the business now C Australia, and you know we're doing over 30,000 kids a year uh, practical programs throughout Sydney and Wollongong in the surf and hopefully what the kids learn out of that you know refers back to water safety and reducing drowning yeah and then um, I mean obviously with my background as well as being a lifeguard professionally for 30 years and we sort of uh, then got together in it was back in 2010 and we formed a 
Well, you were a main part of it, Surf Educators International. Yeah, we, we, we just saw, um, as you know, there's a lot of frustration in the water safety industry. It's very uh, lopsided. A lot of um, the experts in the field aren't heard. Government really doesn't um, doesn't assist in, in most cases. Um, money goes to areas. There's a lot of money gets spent on water safety, but it goes in areas that, that's wasted. We speak, as you know, you know, most of the funding is wasted in Australia, where it should be going to practical on-ground programs to reduce the drowning. We see a lot of it get absorbed in, in basically talk and administration and and property and and and, and so forth. But that's where SEI, Surf Educators International, started. We just needed to band together a bunch of experts to to try and keep the water safety industry, um, I guess, honest. We have had some success, but again, we got a long way to go. There's um, there's a lot of incorrect messages out there that, that we believe lead to drowning, as you see on Bondi Beach. We know we can make a hell of a difference, but it's just getting hurt is the hard part. Yeah, it's always tough getting that uh, the funding. And I've seen um, you've got your five top mis-messages, the myths that are out there. Maybe mention those, the, the messaging that we don't want people to listen to. Yeah, I think the main three, the word out to sea when you talk – about rips, and certainly rips are what drown people in the ocean. The word out to sea gets constantly used by by certain um, water safety organisations, and also gets then adapted in the newspaper like, paper articles. And, and it's just the it's so ill conceived that rips go out to sea. So the rips don't go out to sea. The majority, ninety nine percent, I think, just circulate back in all banks. So onto a sandbank. So if people believe that they're going to get taken out to sea, they're going to do everything they can to not be going out to sea. So they'll take all the wrong actions, they'll swim, they'll panic, and of course swimming and panic is what creates drowning. So that's that's the first wrong message. The the, the other one, and, and I guess getting back to that one, the, the, all the old um, rip diagrams, there's so many that are incorrect. I think um, the, other, the other thing is when people are told to swim out of a rip or swim sideways or swim parallel, you know, that, again, is such a bad message because, because again, swimming is what kills people. Swimming, people can't swim generally. Most Australians aren't, aren't good swimmers, so they'll get told to swim out of a rip and they'll basically use their ability to stay afloat. And flotation being the key to survival in aquatic outlets or areas is just so important and of course in a rip if you can float you'll just float straight onto a sandbank in most cases and come back without even knowing you've been in a rip yet to be told to swim swim in a rip most people swim against it most people want to go back the way they came they'll they'll go in a certain area they'll always swim back the way they came and in in those cases where people drown they just never get back so i think they're the two messages that i i think are the the ones that we need to really put a line through yeah, 100% agree. And the the main message that we've been driving actually now is is float to survive. So maybe give us a, a, a little bit of a rundown on, on that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a new concept, certainly, but, you know, flotation really just, just gets lost in the, I guess, people's need to swim or people um, think that learning to swim will save their lives. But flotation is just a such a... a a relaxed skill in the, in any waterway and uh, particularly in the ocean, if you can be relaxed, your ability to stay afloat is going to be so important. So teaching flotation and their methods that, that aren't just floating on your back, but being able to float whichever is comfortable for you, whether it's on your back or on your belly or doing side stroke 
or treading water. Um, uh, the important skill for us is to learn how to feel the water and develop the right um, strength in your arms and shoulders. But being able to feel the water is just, I mean, for us, it's, it's, it's really basic. But for a lot of people that just don't have the skill and, and, and when, when they do get in trouble, as you see, we, you, you, you yourself call it, they climb the ladder. And when you climb the ladder in the surf, your, your elbows are down instead of up. And, and that's where you first get into trouble, you know, to, to float your elbows need to be up on the surface. And um, I think that's the first way we would be teaching the float to survive techniques. Yeah, that sounds perfect. And uh, where can people look up all that sort of stuff on the SEI site? We've, we've always put together the stuff on, on the rips and how to identify them, how to get out of trouble, flotation on our Surf Educators International website and Sea Australia websites. However, we, um, we have a, a plan to, to do community programs. We want to work with local councils. We want to work with corporate and um, we would like to work with government to start getting this float to survive message across and and even if we're only teaching a handful of people the survival techniques in the ocean it's more so to get the messages out to the greater population that flotation is a life skill and every Australian should not neglect that um, that skill because it will come into play at some stage you know we are surrounded by water and the studies go to show that most people will travel out of the, the the key cities around Australia to a coastal location on holidays, and those coastal locations have surf and they have rips. And so, you know, that um, it's just too accessible to be ignored, the, um, the ocean. So anyone listening out there that wants to um, be involved with water safety and, and, or come on board and, and partner with um, SEI, uh, you know, get in contact with myself or... Rido and um, go to the, the website and um, mate, we'd love as much support as we can get and, and get people on board to help out. Yeah, and, and I guess, Hopper, as you know, when SCI also, we've been established to try and do this thing worldwide and, and we did a research in Ghana, South Africa, I think um, back in 2013. And over there, 65,000 people on average drown a year. And we put together a paper which was published, which which could easily adapt to a lot of coastal areas, and particularly third world countries. And we believe we could reduce drowning by 50% within, within little time by just putting in certain measures and, and programs to get to the local communities in those areas. Yeah, mate, that'd be great to, um, you know, get people on board all around the world. And, and, you know, as you said, we can reduce the drowning by, that's the aim, 50%. And, you know, I know in Thailand they've been doing stuff with, you know, empty two-litre Coke bottles. So it doesn't matter... You know, it's anything you can you can hold on to to float and, and to learn that technique. It's very important. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, flotation devices, um, again, so many people ignore their flotation device when they get into trouble. They, they throw it away. You, you, that's what's going to keep them alive. So, you know, this concept, and it's amazing how a place like Thailand can adapt such a great water safety program initiative. And I can't remember, you know, the figures of what the drowning um, reduction numbers, but... Well, I you think know, they've, re- being, they've reduced it by 50% last last um, article I read, the drowning. 50%. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's amazing. In Australia, we, I reckon we're, we're nearly backwards in the way we um, we look after water safety. Um, you know, that's it's just amazing that it, empty bottles can, can be a concept for teaching people how to survive, but it's being done. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing feat. 
Mate, also, uh, we've been recently doing um, water safety consultancing, both of us, uh, on an animation kids' TV show for the ABC called Kangaroo Beach. That's been a, a little bit different and, and a, an eye-opener on, on how they put all that together. Hey, that's been a blast working with these guys at um, Cheeky Little on, on an animation. You know, we, we, you and I were brought in at stage one where they were talking about the concepts before they had started writing scripts. Yeah, they, they, they had that great idea. And, and to see it from that first meeting that uh, we, were, we had the, the workshop and I uh, had, the, had the whiteboard out and had the ideas on up there of um, different scripts and that sort of thing to, to see the animation, which is just incredible. It's such a rewarding part for us, the water safety concept of, uh, of, of putting something so simple to in a, in, a, in a fun environment. And certainly, you know, our job was to make sure that all the messages were correct and consistent and easy to adapt to. And it's pretty easy to, to assume that, you know, things can or should happen around waterways, but just just putting a lid on some things and, and also things like, um, you know, mobile phones, you know, when, when adults are using mobile phones around around their kids who are in the water, you think, you know, that's that's what that was one of the, the, the key messages that we had was that um, mobile phones around water are bad. You know, you've got to keep your eyes on the water at all times when you're a parent. And um, certainly, we use that it, through the through the throughout the series. And um, look, it was great, you know, for us to be able to put our ideas in, and 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 now they're being uh, recognised by all those kids watching the watching the show. Oh, it's been fantastic. And anyone out there listening, you can get uh, it's on in the mornings, so or you can get it on uh, ABC iView. The, the catch up there and. It's uh, something that I think is very educational and uh, not only the kids, I think the parents will take a lot away from watching Kangaroo Beach. Yeah, and well done to Tim Bain and the crew there. Tim came up with the idea. He's a, he's a Melbourne guy who's, uh, who's, who's done patrols and that sort of thing and uh, geez, they've done a great job. It's, uh, yeah, as I said, it's quite funny. I've really enjoyed working on it. Yeah, he's fantastic, Tim. I uh, interviewed him a couple of weeks ago and he was um, he was stoked. He said... Uh, to give you a, a massive rap as well on the uh, contribution you've put into the Kangaroo Beach, so yeah, we're all uh, it's, it's all going well. Yeah, and and one other thing right. too is um, at least of uh, you've got one up on Leachy because I've interviewed you before Leachy, so you've beaten him. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my that's that's finally I'm not the bridesmaid. Anyway, Rideau, mate, it's great having you in the beach shack and having a chat, catching up on your uh, the old days of the Ironman series and uh, and moving forward now into water safety. It's something that uh, we're both very passionate about and hopefully uh, we can make it as big as Uncle Toby's Ironman series, uh, the water safety. Yeah, thanks, Oppo. Yeah, well, let's just keep working hard at it, mate, and putting our, putting our best foot put, put forward. Cheers, mate. It was great to have Rido in the Beach Shack. Next up, Beach Banner with Lifeguard Harrison. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got the uh, one and only Harrison Reed. Hutsy, how are you? Thanks, Hop. Thanks for having me. When, I, when you sent me the text message, I thought I was having a little chat. I thought I was in trouble. I've done something wrong. <laughs> well, it's not over yet. <laughs> well, I thought we'd uh, you know, kick this one off. You were very, very young and... You know, as people uh, that don't know, you were born in New Zealand and spent all your childhood growing up there. And what was the reason that attracted you to be a lifeguard? Because you did come out for about, what, two, three times to our academy? Yeah, definitely. I um, 
I'd always lived near the beach. I was involved in, with nippers in the, uh, in the surf club when I was younger. And uh, obviously in New Zealand, you don't have the climate that a Sydney has all year round. Being around the beach, it's freezing. Our summer only really lasts, you know, three or four weeks. That's it. <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was the main thing to come out here. We also, I was involved, in, I was in Christchurch with the, the really bad earthquakes yep. when I was through about 16, 17. And the, the city was destroyed. There was nothing there. And I was like, I don't want to be here for... Yep you know, the immediate future and need to get out of here. What beaches did you go to in New Zealand? Mate, there was Taylor's Mistake, you know, Mount Monganui, there's Piha, there's Sumner. There's a lot, lot of good little beaches, yeah. but the, the water's freezing. Mm. Like the water in the winter is about 11 degrees, gets up to 17 in the summer. Right, yeah, so it's not real. Sort of like our winter, we only really get to what, 15, 16 or something in winter. Yeah, 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 that's it. And it's the wind chill as well. You get like a, a minus one wind chill, you know, three degree wind chill, which, you know, it's warmer in the water. <laughs> Yeah, oh, mate, you can have that. It's too yeah. cold, too cold. But at least you get some good uh, snow and, and for skiing. A lot yeah. of people go over for skiing. Yeah, exactly. So how did you find it when you came over? You did the academy, what, three times? Yeah, I did the academy. Look, as we know, I'm, I'm definitely not the fittest bloke on the service, you know, <laughs> and especially at that time. But, you know, I was keen. And as you always said, you know, like, uh, you know, you might be the uh, the fittest person, but you got to spot them first, you know, so... You know, for me, you know, it's, you know, looking out over the water and actually preventing and spotting people in trouble, that was a thing that was big for me. Yeah, there's a lot more to lifeguarding than just, uh, you know, not always the fastest swimmer, fastest board paddler is going to be the best lifeguard or even become a lifeguard. It's, uh, as you said, it's all in uh, making sure you can see what's happening and what's going to happen in the you know, future. Yeah, definitely, definitely. What, um, so when you did hit Bondi, how did you... Um find that because it would have been the first couple of times you'd ever come to Bondi yeah well, I did the did the obviously did the academy which was which was fun then I remember that a couple of times and I was still at school and I remember I was emailing you and I, you said <laughs> I said I was what's your, is your position on the traineeship coming up and you said no but there's one on the following year you know if you want to take it and it was perfect because I allowed me to finish school which was mm. good and then have a few months back home then come straight over and that's when I started yeah, so I remember we wanted you to finish your schooling and I think you would have started the next day if we gave you the chance, but we just had to hold you off for another 12 months and uh, yeah. I'll tell you what, that went around real quick and then suddenly, you, you know, how long have you been here now? Kind of eight years now. Yeah. It's gone so, so quick. Oh, it's gone so, so quick. It's, um, yeah, it, it's flown the, the years. So, mate, you're enjoying it? Mate, it's good. It's been the best thing for me. Like, yeah. you know, you'd know as well, the people we meet, you know, we get to go to the beach each day, we get to train. Every day is different, you know, the experiences and the incidents we've all been in, it's, you can't write half the stuff that happens down there, you know, and it's, it's just, it's not like, uh, it's not routine, every day you just want to rock up, what crazy is going to come at you, you know, we're do a rescue, you know, you could do a week, we're not doing a rescue, you yeah. could do 50 in one day, it's, it's, it's different. Yeah, it's a totally different beast at Bondi and probably different to the beaches over there in New Zealand. Yeah, definitely, like there's, the beaches are empty. Even yeah. in summer, you know, it's 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 quite nice going back home to New Zealand to actually appreciate to get space and um, and get you know get a place to yourself yeah. where that would never happen around yeah. in Australia. No, you never get a spot at all. There's thousands of people everywhere. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> definitely, definitely. Anyway, mate, thanks for uh, stopping at the beach shack and having a chat, and uh, we'll catch up soon. Talk to you soon. Cheers, hot. Thanks, Harrison, for coming into the beach shack and telling your story. Coming up next, I answer letters from the mailbag. This week's letters from Cassie. How old do you have to be to get a traineeship? 
Well, we sort of look at being at least 18 these days, so you have a driver's license because you need to drive the beach buggies on the beach and uh, a little bit more mature. So because it's a full-time 38-hour-a-week job, we're pretty much looking around 18 years old. Plus, we'd like to see everyone finish uh, high school as well and finish their schooling. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.